0: Have you turn in your Bibles, we're in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to continue our journey, we're marching through this book. You know, the Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament, we have this picture and, you know, God uses visuals to get our attention. One of them is the picture of a path or a road. So when the Bible wants us to teach us about the real nature of love... We find a very interesting story it's an unusual story in that it's not a picture of romantic love that's what our culture is about right this is you know Valentine's Day and you know we're sending things to our sweethearts and that's what it's all about but I want to talk a little bit about the difference between what our culture values as we relate to love and what God wants to communicate to love and so It's rather interesting that when God wants to demonstrate love, he paints it in a variety of relationships, and many of them are not even sexual in nature. That's interesting. You know, I think of the story of a love between a young widow and her mother-in-law, Ruth, a Moabitess, not even of the people of Israel, and Naomi, an Israelite who'd left her hometown of Bethlehem because there was a famine in the land. And in Ruth 1, we have this contrast between Ruth and Orpah, who is both young widows now. They were actually the sons of Naomi. And these young women were so impacted and influenced by Naomi's life that when they had lost their husbands and Naomi had decided to return to her homeland, they both said, we'll go with you. And then we read in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? In other words, what benefit is there to you if you come back to my homeland? And at this they wept again. Then Opa kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. You know, the Bible loves to do this. The Bible's full of contrasts. And here's a contrast between the love of Orpah, which is a love that says, I love you But now that the benefits are gone, I can leave you. And Ruth, who says, I love you no matter what. And she goes on to say, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Isn't that a powerful expression? I mean, you talk about commitment. She's basically saying, I'm gonna follow you, Naomi, no matter what. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And many times we come into a wedding and we use this as an expression of the kind of commitment we're hoping to see in a relationship between a man and his wife, a husband and his wife. It says, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. So now we have that picture. She's on a road. She's on a path. She's heading to Bethlehem. This commitment is seen in the direction that these women are going. Naomi's influence over Ruth can only be described as the power of love. Really, that's it. That's Something you know has transpired between these two, and it's amazing to me how many believers think that the key to changing our world is by taking the same path that our culture is taking. Isn't that true? I mean, it's, you know, I've been ch- chatting here the last few weeks, and I've talked about some of the challenges that are being presented to us in our culture, and yet many many times we feel almost powerless in relationship to the power structures of our world. Isn't that true? You know. I hear Christians talking all the time. You know, they're frustrated. Some of them are about, you know, this government and who's doing what and what they're saying and how this is going to impact our lives. Isn't that kind of where most people are chatting today? Can I just move past all of that and give you a real reassuring message today? A message of hope that it doesn't really matter what these guys are doing? You know, and what I mean by that is if. You know, if we, if we have control and power on our side, you know, we feel like we can make people do what we want them to do. We can create laws, you know? But we know from history and human nature, people only comply when they're compelled. How many know that's true? You know? And isn't that true? Like, you know, you can see that. Can you imagine if there was no police force to enforce laws? What would happen? It would be pretty chaotic. Why? Because people aren't just going to keep the laws that they know are beneficial to the people around them. They're just going to do their own thing, right? They're going to have no concern about other people. So we know that rules alone aren't going to change people. They're just outward structures, and unless there's enforcement, people don't comply to those things. Real change happens when we're transformed from within. And what I'm saying to us is that there is a power and a a dynamic that you and I can experience that actually is more powerful than the strongest expressions of control that we can have over people based on roles. It's interesting in Mark chapter 10, and this is where we left off, and this was the verse we left off on. This is the verse I'm going to start with today. It says, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to change everything. I'm going I'm to flip everything around. I'm going to do this great reversal thing. I'm going to change the way you and I you know, need to see it, need to understand it, and so... You know, I, I raise a question this, this morning. Do we really get Jesus? Do we really understand the true nature of Christianity and what it means to us in every aspect of our lives? You know, I, I don't think we fully get it. I think we're on a journey of getting it. I think some of us have gotten it more than others. Some of us have probably been on the road longer than others. Some of us have learned through the school of hard knocks, Right? And we always have this pressure because our culture's battering against us with all kinds of ideologies, and we've, we've been in it, and so many times we don't even realize how tainted we really are. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes along, and the things that he says and does are so counterculture. They're so opposed to everything that's going on around us that it's hard for us to kind of just, you know, when we, when, we, when we begin to follow Jesus, it just seems like we still have a lot of what the world says and teaches and does inside of us. And so we start living, you know, following Jesus, but yet there's still a lot of the culture inside of us with the wrong viewpoint. And there's this tension that begins to happen in our lives. Our world today celebrates love and it's primarily romantic love. And I'm not saying that that that's wrong. Nothing wrong with romantic love. But it's only a small specter of love. And I want to give us a broader view of love and I want it to help us expand beyond that model of love and begin to understand what true love really is all about. And how that true love, you and I can begin to demonstrate to people all around us. Isn't that great? We can demonstrate it to, you know, our neighbors, not just to our spouse, but to our children, to friends, to our coworkers, to people that we don't like. Right? It says love those, uh, that your enemies. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. So let's take a look at what true love is all about. And so today in our text, we're going to discover the answers to many of these questions that I've just raised. And so last week, as we looked at the story of the rich young ruler and the call to put aside anything that would stand in our way in following Jesus, now Jesus, for the third time in three chapters, here in the Gospel of Mark, predicts in greater detail what his love will mean to both his disciples, which includes many of us, So I want to look at these three elements in the nature of true love. And the first one is seen in what we are willing to sacrifice or suffer on behalf of others. Love's focus is not inward. Love's focus is outward. You could probably write that down. You you, you know when, see, love isn't about being loved so much as it's about giving love. And so many of us, you know, we're locked into wanting to be loved because it's a great need in our lives. But the reality is we need to demonstrate love. How many know that if you keep sowing love, eventually you're gonna reap love? You know, eventually, you will, if you're sowing it. The right kind of love. And I'll I'll explain what I mean by the right kind of love. Um, Love is not about getting. Love is about Giving. And we're gonna learn about what true love is from the author of love because the Bible says God is love. So let's learn from God how to love. In our culture, romantic love is about what others do for us rather than understanding that what real love is is what we do for others. And so we see Jesus here in verse 32. He's leading his disciples. It says they were on their way up to Jerusalem. Now this is geographical. They're actually in the city of Jericho, which is actually below sea level. Isn't that amazing? One of the cities below sea level is a city called Jericho. And Jerusalem is above sea level, and so geographically, they're gonna head up. It's not a long distance, about 22 miles, but boy, you're, you're going up and up and up. You're climbing into a bit of a, you know, there's mountains around Jerusalem. And it says here, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. I like that. Jesus isn't telling us what to do. He's leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Other translations, you know, will express this this passage a little differently. Basically, what's happening here is there's a number of people. It's a crowd. Think about it. He's in the city of Jericho. He's going through everywhere Jesus is at now. He's toward the end of his life. This is his last trip to Jerusalem. What's about to happen there is in the next few weeks. He's going to be betrayed, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be crucified. He knows this. He's heading up there. As a matter of fact, the disciples realize that this is kind of a scary thing to be doing. Because they know that this is, uh, you know, Jerusalem has not treated Jesus well in the past. And they're concerned. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. He says, we're going to go up to Jerusalem Then the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. This is a very detailed prediction. The other ones aren't quite as detailed, but this is the most detailed prediction to date. Isn't that an amazing statement? Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. How many think that would be a little bit scary if you knew exactly what was about to happen to you and it wasn't good? How many go, "I, I would be struggling with moving forward. Anybody else might be struggling with moving forward if you knew that in the days ahead what was about to happen was not a good thing. And yet, what we see here is tremendous want, moral courage. But I would say what's really driving Jesus is love. He's willing to suffer... Because he loves people. We're immediately struck by the fact that they were both astonished and afraid because Jesus was now heading to Jerusalem. They knew that there was opposition there. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, we have it brought out a little clearer for us, just how much they understood. As a matter of fact, it says... This is just before he goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. This is, he's on his way to do this. He's stopping through Jericho. Remember, he's taking time to get there. It says, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. But rabbi, they said, which means teacher, rabbi means teacher, said a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going to go back there? Like how many go, you know, don't you learn anything from this? I mean, hey, these guys don't like you. How many usually go, I, yeah, I like to hang out where people hate me? You know, no, we don't want to do that, right? But Jesus has got a purpose in what he's about to do. Then Thomas called Ditmus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You know, we always give Thomas a bad time, but he's pretty courageous here. He says, hey, I'm prepared to follow Jesus, even if it's going to cost me my life. That's a pretty high commitment, wouldn't you say? So you get an idea that this is not an easy journey for these guys. So we're struck by the fact that Jesus is willing to die for us. As we're about to see, we often misunderstand the necessity of why Jesus had to die. You know, a lot of times in our Christian life, we have dreams, we have desires, but sometimes our ambition, our desire, our dream is not exactly what God has in mind for us. And what happens is, god's purposes start to begin to be played out and you and i get frustrated and we're a little upset because god isn't doing what we want him to do isn't that true sure it is the focus is wrong often our focus is not on god what you want our focus is on what we want and Jesus here not only tells us that he has to die, but why he has to die. The text is actually the key to understanding the entire gospel. As a matter of fact, if you want to, you know, sometimes there are certain verses that are like keys opening up the whole book. Here it comes, chapter 10, verse 45. This is the key verse in the entire gospel. For even the Son of Man did not come to be, to, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so when it comes to humility and suffering, Jesus does not only teach it, he leads the way in it. He is the ultimate example of it. So why do we need a redeemer? Well, you know what? Sin causes estrangement, which really is a distancing, a separation, a brokenness in our relationships. It's a violation of love. It's seen in our indifference. You know, How do, how do we know we have problems with love issues? Well, Here's what happens. We tend to do one of two things. You know, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Okay? And so we have this indifference or this neglect of relationship or it can be an action of trying to control and abuse others. That's the other thing we tend to do with people. You know, we either, we, we either just ignore them and withdraw from them or else we become very controlling and abusive. That's how relationships tend to tend to gravitate, you know, gravitate towards these things unless there is genuine love being exhibited. So why do we need to be ransomed to be set free through a substitutionary death? In other words, why can't God just forgive sins? Haven't you ever heard people say, well, why, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, why can't God just forgive everybody? See? You know, how many know that there's something, uh, there's a problem with this idea? Because when we sin, we actually violate people. We hurt people. It's not just, oh, just, you know, well, I forgive and forget and move on kind of a thing. We know that some real damage has been done. And I like what Tim Keller writes. He says, if God is really a loving God, why doesn't he just forgive everybody? Here's the beginning of the answer. Jesus didn't have to die despite God's love. He had to die because of God's love. And it has to be this way because all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. That's the reason. Now, I want you to think about it. Keller goes on to say, if you love a person whose life is all put together and has no major needs, it really costs you very little, right? Or nothing. How many? You know, I always tell people: listen, try to marry the person that's the healthiest person you can find. You know, why do would you do that? Because it's a lot easier to love a person that's lovable. You know, some people are just enjoyable; they're 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 easy to love. And how many know that those those people? There's not a lot of them out there. (laughs) Most people are kind of broken and a little messed up. Isn't that true? And you're thinking it's the other person that's broken and messed up. But the reality is, you know, sin does a lot of damage in our life. And we have emotional damage in our life and then it becomes a lot more difficult to love that individual. But if you love a needy person, a wounded person, how many know it's gonna cost you something? It just is gonna do that. The greater the need, the greater the cost. You spend yourself on their behalf. And the classic example, of course, is parents i mean, you know the only way your children will grow beyond their dependency into self-sufficient adults is for you to essentially abandon your own independence for about 20 years or so yes. isn't that true you know everybody goes oh. you know I, I always love it i get it's fun as you get older because you watch and you hear and you look and you you've lived it and you've experienced it and then you see people doing it and they're all excited about having these little kids come along and i'm just thinking that's great but it's going to be work. You know, you are going to learn to be less self-centered. How many of you know people that have kids, you know, this is not speaking any disparaging remarks to people who don't have children because maybe some people cannot have children. But I'll tell you one thing, you have kids and you got to die to yourself. You know, that's the way it works. I can still remember Rachel, my youngest daughter. I mean, Andrea was a bird, the oldest one. You know, I think we bought her a restaurant meal when she was about 12. She just kind of, you know, ate off our plate, and that was it. Rachel, I'd order food for her at two. She'd eat everything we ordered, and then I'd have to give her some of mine. You know, some of the guys are going, really? Because, you know, usually when you're a guy, right, the kids don't finish and you clean up. Not at my house. Rachel is a great eater. Man, she just, you know, and I wasn't uptight about it. You know, if you really love people, you don't mind giving to them. Isn't that true? That's just the way it is. It works out that way. You're dressing them, you're feeding them, you're nurturing them, they're getting you up night, they're crying, they can't be, you know, especially when they're little and they can't talk, you know, they're fussing and caring. How many know what I'm talking about? I mean, up at night, you're walking the floor, you know. I don't even know if this was good or not, but, you know, both my kids were colicky. How many know what that means? Oh, some of you just were, ah, pastor, I, I, I feel it, you know. <laughs> And you take turns as parents and you're walking up and you're giving them a little gripe water, you know, trying to do something to soothe them or calm them down, you know, and they're crying, 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 you know, you know, and sleep is disappearing. Some of you go, Pastor, I know that experience. Some of you may be living it right now. You're losing sleep for this little one, but you love them, right? You know, then, you know, raising children, in a sense, is a sacrifice, and so many people decide they don't want to invest in other people you know well I, you know, I can handle it with my own kids but what about other kids you know the hardest area to find in the church to serve is in children's ministry isn't that amazing you know think about it everyone goes oh that's a lot of work pastor yeah but it's anything worthwhile requires effort that's, that's what I've discovered in life if you really want to impact people I, and I think of it this way Think about it, a child only has so many people impacting their lives. Adults, you're not going to have a big impact on them, for the most part. But when you're younger, and when an older person takes interest and invests in a younger person's life, that will stay with that person through their entire life. So I'm going to just encourage you to think about investing in children, because they're going to make a huge impact. It's just that you don't see the returns right away, you know? Sometimes adults can be very appreciative and thank you and all the rest of it. But sometimes adults can be very malicious, nasty too. You know, I've been a pastor for a long time. Believe me, I get all kinds of responses. Everyone thinks, well, everyone loves you, pastor. You know, be a pastor. <laughs> be a pastor. You'll find out. Okay. <clears throat> but th- what happens when we don't invest in our children, the children who... The result is usually when children are neglected by their parents, they become emotionally needy, vulnerable, and dependent. Lots of insecurities. So I want to just stop here and say kudos to all the parents who are investing heavily into the lives of your children. You know what? You are doing a great work. You are doing the most powerful work at this stage. You are investing and developing these young people and they're going to rise up one day and, and they will thank you for pouring into their lives. They may not always thank you. I can still remember certain comments. You know, you're, how many have ever had that comment, you're the worst parent in the world? Anybody have that? <laughs> Didn't you get that one? Yeah, I got that. You know? You know? Oh, I, I was the worst youth pastor in the world. I've been the worst pastor in the world. You know, I just go, good. It makes me feel good. Because I know I'm doing it Right? because if you're always doing what everybody wants you're not really helping people you see if you're you know I always tell parents listen you're only a parent once your kids have a lot of friends they don't need another friend they need a parent and they need a parent who will say this is what's best for you because you're too young to know any better Yeah, kids they don't know any better Okay, I'm just affirming all the parents that were tough, you know, and said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be firm. I'm going to be gracious, but I'm going to be firm. You know, I got my high support, high expectation hat on, you know. Okay. I'm going to highly support you, but I'm going to expect a lot from you. I'm not going to let you get away with things. You're going you're gonna to turn out right. It's good. Okay, that's the way I am as a pastor, too. So you go, that, that's what the problem is, pastor. You're just a little too tough. That's Okay. That's because I really care, I want you guys to grow up. Either you suffer temporarily and in a redemptive way or you're gonna suffer tragically in a wasteful and destructive way. All real life-changing love is a substitutionary sacrifice. I agree with Tim Keller, that is the truth. And you and I get to participate in that. Let me move on to the second element in the nature of true love. It's how we serve others. You know, I, I wrote that love is not just verbal, it's a verb. In other words, you know, don't tell me you love me. And then that's all you do is say it. How many go, that doesn't work? Love has to be demonstrated, right? You know, don't just say the words. It, it's action. It requires effort. It requires energy. Oh, The focus of love is always on the other person. You know, once you get this, I'm, I'm helping you out here. You want to be a great lover? How many want to be a great lover? All you got to do is focus on the other person. It's all about the other person. The moment you start doing it, can you imagine if two spouses made a decision from this day forward, it's going to be about the other person? And they both did it. Wouldn't that be awesome? That's what everybody wants, right? That's rarely what happens. You know, and you can see it in relationships. Some people are very selfish, unthoughtful, uncaring, indifferent, unkind. Yeah, it's the way it works. You have to work at this. You know, yet we're going to see from James and John here as the story continues on where their focus is. Jesus has now just told them, I'm going to die for you. Look what happens in the next breath. This, this is so amazing. Then James and John, verse 35, the sons of Zebedee came and said, Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Isn't that amazing? Now, had Jesus not told them, prayer, ask whatever you want, and I'll do it for you. So now Jesus says, I'm going to go and die for you. And these guys walk up and say, Okay, Jesus, listen to us. We want you to do exactly what we ask of you. Jesus said, Well, what do you want? Isn't that great? That tells me something about Jesus. You know, what amazes me is how often we're like James and John. We become consumed with our own agenda that we don't understand what Jesus has in mind for our lives. We don't understand God's agenda. We're on our own agenda. And these guys were on their own agenda. So they said, Jesus, do whatever, you know, whatever we ask of you. And he says, well, what do you want? In verse 36, 37, they said, let one of us sit on your right and the other sit on your left in your glory wow now these guys were so locked in to their understanding number one let's not get too uptight with them because first of all they believed that Jesus was the Messiah but they had a picture of what that meant and what they thought it meant was Jesus is going to go up to Jerusalem he's going to take over the whole kick out the Romans some of you go how can one guy do that well just remember a little something about Jesus these guys had been walking with Jesus. Had they not seen him command the weather to change? Yeah. Had they not seen him raise people from the dead? Yeah. And they'd seen him heal all these diseases? How many get a sense that if, you know, G- they said, what manner of man is this? You know, they were beginning to wonder, you know, Jesus has an amazing amount of power. It's amazing what he can do. Uh, you know what, they had no illusions that Jesus could actually overthrow the Romans. They figured that out. So they thought it was gonna be an earthly reign on earth. By, oh, by the way, just so that you don't think they're so crazy, let me just say something to us. Most of us as Christians, we're focused on heaven. Isn't that true? You know, and I die, I'm gonna go to heaven. I'm gonna say something to you that's gonna shock you. Heaven is only a temporary place. What? Yeah. Because God is gonna create a new heavens and a new earth. The, the heavens are gonna come down and they're gonna be on this earth. Well, wait a minute, Patrick, I thought the earth is going to burn up. I go, no, no, no. Remember when God destroyed the world by a flood? The the world still survived. When he's talking about the world's going to be destroyed by fire, he's not talking in the sense that the world's going to be zapped, you know? That's what we think in our mind. So then we're going to live in heaven. No, no, no. God is going to recreate. He's going to get rid of all the earthly corruption. We're going to actually live on earth heaven's going to is a temporary place until Jesus comes back. The saints are coming back to earth. You guys will think about that some more. <laughs> I already know that I'm messing with your minds a little bit because you know when you and I hear James and John talk like this, we just think, well, they're so earthly. You know, we're we're spiritual pastors. We're heavenly. And I'm going, "Yeah, but they're probably closer to the truth than we realize." The only problem was What Jesus was about to do was not what they thought he was about to do. They, you know, Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. And they're going, does not compute, does not compute. You know what I mean? It was not computing, right? You know, I like what Tim Keller says. They wanted a prominent place in the messianic earthly kingdom. Though they recognized, oh this is James Brooks, though they recognized Jesus as the Messiah, they completely misunderstood the nature of the kingdom Jesus came to establish. Uh, Timothy Keller says that when we read this, we're not supposed to say, uh, how can these fools keep missing it? I mean, isn't it, I don't know, when you guys read this story, don't you kind of think, Duh, what's wrong with you guys, <laughs> right? Does anybody think like that? Can, how many think kind of, yeah, they're just like, they're really not in touch at all with what's going on. You know, you, you just feel like they're just kind of, how can you be that close to Jesus and that out of step with him, right? How many have ever thought that? Come on, let's be honest. You ever thought that? Yeah, but you know, Mark is setting us up. How many know these guys like to set us up? And actually, that's what we're like. Mark is basically saying you and I are often like James and John. We're kind of, you know, in our minds, we have it all figured out how it's all going to play out. And we have it all figured out in our lives how it's supposed to play out. But when it doesn't play out that way, what do we tend to do? We're upset. We're frustrated. We're ticked off at God. You know, we're disillusioned. We're confused. You know, this wasn't supposed to happen. Life wasn't supposed to turn out this way, right? Come on now, let's be honest. Well, I mean, that's not the way the dream's supposed to unfold. I had a nice fairy tale dream. God, this is turning out to be a nightmare. Anybody relate to what I'm saying? Yeah. Richard Hayes, a New Testament scholar, says, Mark's vision of the moral life is profoundly ironic because God's manner of revelation Um, is characterized by hiddenness reversal and surprise how many can say that's been my experience as a Christian a lot of things I didn't see there were a lot of reversals in my life I didn't expect and oh yeah I'm surprised by this anybody got gone through that I've been a Christian 40 years I'm going to tell you this is what it's really all about He says, those who follow Jesus find themselves repeatedly failing to understand the will of God. Hmm. Therefore, there can be no place for smugness or dogmatism. What is he saying? It's humbling to follow God because we would like to think we have all the answers. Now we have, we're following the right person. But I'm going to tell you something. God's going to pull stuff, and you're going to go, I didn't expect that. I'm like James and John. I'm I'm going, why is that happening? That's not the way it's supposed to be played out. You know, If our sensibilities are formed by this narrative, we will learn not to take ourselves too seriously. Uh, As a matter of fact, we'll be very self-critical and receptive to unexpected manifestations of God's love and power. In other words, we're walking along and going, wow, I didn't expect that. And you know what's really neat? This is the really part that I like. When you think it's a mess, all of a sudden, boop, God pulls up and you go, man, in the middle of this mess, God is revealing himself in power. In the midst of my weakness and struggle, God is being glorified. When I think I don't have my act together, God is using me at the highest possible level. Yes. How many go, it's, it's mind-boggling? Do you know what I've discovered? That everything about life is a mess. Because as human beings, we got issues. We're messy. We're messy. Come on now. Life is messy. Sin creeps in. Disease creeps in. Problems keep creeping in. Challenges, difficulties. Life is messy. And yet in spite of all of that, God is working He's in control. There's times I don't get it. There's times I don't understand. Sometimes, you know, the way I write the story, my endings don't turn out like God's endings. But he knows what he's doing. Listen to the prayerful petition to Jesus We want you to do whatever we ask. Aren't you glad God doesn't always answer our prayer? He says, let us sit at your right hand and your left hand. And it's to be in a place of prominence. Jesus now is going to correct their misunderstanding. Uh, I'm skipping through some stuff. No, I want that. Listen to what it says in verse 38. "You don't know what you're asking," Jesus said to them, "Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized?" baptized with? Yeah, we can, they answered. They didn't know what they were saying. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup. The cup is usually that which God allots to your life, okay? Generally, in the Old Testament, a cup was a statement of judgment. In this case, it's not judgment, but it's difficulty and suffering. You're going to be baptized with the baptism I baptized with. What baptism is he talking about? Baptism of suffering. But he said, to sit on my right and left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Uh, okay isn't it interesting that when we make God's kingdom about us it's usually done at the expense of others how many know that's true think about it and that's not the nature of love When the ten heard about this in verse 41, they became indignant with James and John. Their selfish action caused conflict in their group, right? Whenever you and I get selfish, we hurt people. Just write that down. When I get selfish, I hurt others. How many think that's kind of simple? How many say, "That's, that's true, Pastor? It is true, isn't it? But now Jesus directs us to the right example himself. Look what he says in verse 42. Then he called them together. There's conflict going on. By the way, conflict is all about who's going to be in control, who's right, who gets the best. You know, all, it's all about self-centeredness. Jesus pulls them all together. He says, hey, let me have a little talk with you guys. You know that there are those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles. They lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Now, you know what Jesus is doing? He's holding up that which is the most despised position in the whole Roman Empire, the slave, who has no rights, no authority, no power, seemingly no influence. Jesus says, this is is the the level at which you're going to strive for. I want you to be a slave. I want you to serve people. I, I don't want you to aspire to be a leader. I want you to aspire to be a slave. How many go... Boy, that's a lot different than what our culture' is saying today. How many say this is? This message is totally anti-culture. It's against the culture right now. It's against the grain, isn't it? Right? Don't we aspire to get to the top of the pile, you know? Be the boss? So what is he saying to us? We make an assumption that we can influence and shape people's life because we're in a place of authority. Isn't that true? How many? That's kind of what we think. We're the boss. We'll tell people what to do. Yet those who serve are the people who have the real impact. The people who serve are the people who have the real influence. Now I want you to remember. Remember when Israel was taken into exile, into Babylon. Remember that? How many remember what I'm talking about? Okay, in the Old Testament. They had sinned, God had warned them, they finally didn't repent, God took them into exile. So then God sends a message to them in exile. What does God tell these guys? Does anybody know? He basically says this to them. Now, while you're in Babylon, I want you to do this. I want you to settle down. I want you to pray for the city. I want you to bless the city. I want you to do good to the city. And I'll prosper the city and when I prosper the city I'll prosper you so what is he telling these people serve the city of Babylon in other words be good slaves isn't that what he's telling them he is and by the way isn't it kind of funny who were the people that really had the great influence in Babylon Well, there was the despots like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. But who else was running around in in, uh, Babylon? People like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Then you get to the Persian Empire. They're still slaves. Who are the people running around under the Persians? People like Esther and Mordecai. How many get a feeling like the people of God were actually the people that were influencing even the top people? How many get a feeling that they were the ones that were actually impacting the nation? Because they were good servants. How many think that's interesting? Servants influence others more powerfully and dramatically because, than those who even rule over others. Why? Because love serves and love changes hearts. And I love how Timothy Keller says it. God says the route to gaining influence is not taking power. Influence is gain, gaining through power and control doesn't really change society because it doesn't really change people's hearts. Be so sacrificially loving that the people around you who don't believe in what you believe will soon be unable to imagine the place without you. Do you know there are people like that? That they come in and they don't have any agenda and they're just there to love and serve people, but they're so dynamic that the people around them go, I can't imagine life without you. And that's what love brings. Is that amazing? it is powerful you know it's kind of neat you know it's it's fun to be you know you raise your kids and you hope that they learn the good things right you hope that they grow up having the right kind of values you know Rachel works at a restaurant and you know it's not my favorite place I've been there once I don't enjoy it it's a you know to me it's just I don't know how she could take it But that's the way she is she's just this little light bulb in there and one of the other co-workers said Rachel when you come to work everything seems brighter and lighter and when you're not here it seems darker that's what I'm talking about when you and I come into a place and not because we're the boss or telling people what to do we just come and love and serve people feel it they're influenced, they're impacted by that. This is what I'm talking about. They'll trust you because they see that you're not only out for yourself, but you're out for them as well. Isn't that powerful? I love that. When they voluntarily begin to look up to you because of the attractiveness of your love and service, you have real influence. How many think, you know, I don't have to be... The brightest person. I just have to be a servant. I just have to be a loving person. Hmm. It will be an influence given to you by others, not taken by you from others. Yeah, I learned a long time ago (laughs) you can demand respect, or you can just love people and you gain respect. How many know there's a difference? You know, the people that come into a job and go, I'm the boss, everyone cringes. When people come in and say, what can I do to help you? Everybody feels the burden lightening. Isn't that true? Yeah. Some of us are older. You, know, you understand all what I'm talking about. We get to practice this every single day. Well, let me move on to the third point. It's how, we're, what we're willing to go, sorry is seen in what we're willing to go with others, where we're willing to go with others. Love requires us to choose and take a direction. Love requires us to journey with other people. In this closing section of Mark 10, we find the reluctance of the 12 and the other disciples to go to Jerusalem, do we not? They're astonished, they're afraid, they're going, what's Jesus doing? This is a scary direction. But they went, but they were, were, you know, hesitant in going. And yet we come to the story of Bartimaeus. By the way, he's the only person in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that is actually named, that was healed. That's because he became a follower of Jesus and probably was well-known in the church at Jerusalem. It's interesting. You're going to love this because, you know, Mark does this to us when he's writing. He gets Barnabas to say the same thing that James and John does. Remember... He's sitting there, he's blind, he's by the roadside, and he hears a commotion, and somebody tells him, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by, and he starts hollering. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Now, what does he mean when he says son of David? He's saying, you're the Messiah. He's declaring that I know who you are. Even though he's blind, he knows who he is. James and John knew he was the Messiah, but so does Bartimaeus. So when he, Jesus says to him, he stops and says, come. And he gets up. And Bartimaeus asks for, you know, Bartimaeus asks for faith. James and John ask for fame. Bartimaeus wants to follow Jesus on the way. James and John want to sit with him in glory. It's interesting that they're on a different frequency. Is what I'm trying to get at. It says here, people were rebuking him, told him to be quiet, and yet the more they did, the more he shouted. You know, isn't it interesting that the world will always tell believers to be quiet? Did you guys know that? They don't want to hear. They don't want to hear us declare that Jesus is Lord. The early church was persecuted because they said Jesus rather than Caesar is Lord. Did you know that? That's why some of them died. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't say Caesar's Lord. They said there's only one Lord and his name is Jesus. Wow. You know, when Jesus stopped, called them. I love this. So then then the people around him says, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Can you imagine getting the attention of Jesus? And what happens... When Jesus calls, it says he threw, he threw he throwing his cloak aside, verse 50, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. I don't know, why did he throw his cloak aside? Was he excited? Yes. He was giving up all he had? Maybe it was a hindrance. It's in my way. <laughs> don't want any hindrances to get to Jesus, right? I'm getting there. So he gets to Jesus and, he, and, he, and Jesus says to him, What do you want me to do for you? Same thing he asked James and John. He says, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you and immediately received his sight. And then it says this, and he followed Jesus along the road. Remember, he starts out, he's sitting by the road, but now he's on the road. That's a very important visual picture. He's following Jesus. Where is he following Jesus? He's following him to Jerusalem. He's following him to a place where Jesus is about to die, where Jesus is gonna suffer. You know, there's a lot of, you know, I think, significance to these little statements that Mark is making. Now, how many think it's kind of amazing that this man follows Jesus, and the first thing that happens when Jesus gets to Jerusalem is that he's betrayed and he's crucified? Now, this guy could have been totally disillusioned, right? What in the world have I done? But you know what had happened to him? Not only was he able to physically see, he had a spiritual understanding. And so he became a follower of Christ. So, what can we learn about Jesus? From Jesus about love. What can we learn from Jesus about love? That even while he was heading to the cross, he was concerned about others. How many know that? You can see that. You know what's amazing to me? Even on the cross, he's concerned about Mary. How many think that's amazing? Even while he's suffering, he's thinking about others that's true love I can learn that from Jesus James Edwards says Bartimaeus is not a problem to be dealt with Jesus will not do something to him but something with him you know a lot of times people that are needy we just try to meet the need so we can get rid of them come on now Jesus doesn't operate that way he's not trying to get rid of people Jesus loves people Do you know people pick up on that? Yeah, here's 20 bucks, beat it. You know, your kid is bugging you, here's 20 bucks, go do something. Come on. What are they really wanting? They want your attention. What does Jesus give us? His attention. How many think that's the true nature of love? We're giving attention to the people that are in our lives. Who is God bringing into my life that I need to give attention to? Following Jesus along the road is Mark's way of describing true discipleship and what it really costs. Faith that does not lead to discipleship is not saving faith. That's a powerful statement. I agree with James Edwards. Whoever asks of Jesus must be willing to follow him even on the uphill road to the cross. In other words, when you think about how much God loves us, and how much did he love us? He gave us everything, including his entire life. What does he require of us? Same thing. You know, I was reading that story. I'm going to meet this little lady. She's in heaven I, because Jesus is not back on earth. Okay. The little lady puts in her two coins. And what does Jesus say? She's given more than all of them. These guys gave out of their surplus, Jesus said. She gave out of her necessity. She gave out of her living. Who gave more? She did. It cost more. She gave everything. They gave a part. What does God want from us? All of us. Everything. That story is why I'm in the ministry today. That example is why I'm here. Because... When I was talking to God one day, it was that story that God says, I'm not interested in only a part of you. I want all of you. I want all of you. That's a challenge, isn't it? Can I just say this? You don't really love people until you give all of you. Let's stand. I don't know about you, but this is challenging to me. I can't love like this. But you know, here's the good news. I want to leave on a positive note because that, you go, pastor, this was so intense. I I mean, you're just leaving us here hanging, you know, like how am I supposed to love like this? I mean, this is like, you know, overwhelming. But let me just read this little verse. I love this verse. It says, And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts, By the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. The only way I can love like this is to allow God's love to flow into me. And how does that happen? Through the Holy Spirit. I have to be, you know, I can tell when we're full of the Spirit. We're full of the Spirit when love flows through us. Okay? You know, sometimes in the charismatic Pentecostal dimension, we think, The Holy Spirit's at work when we're speaking in tongues, or you know, operating in spiritual gifts. Can I just tell you something? That's nice, and I'm not saying it isn't true, but it's not the ultimate truth. The result of the Holy Spirit is love. That's what Galatians 5:22 and 23 tells me. So, I cannot function in this way unless God's Spirit is activated in my heart. In other words. I'm at a deficit when it comes to love. I have to be honest. I'm at a very terrible deficit. Anybody else share that deficit with me? I don't know if I can love people exactly like this. I need help to love like this. I can't do this. You know, to just keep dying to myself and giving, 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 giving. And I'm not talking about for a day or two. I'm talking for weeks on end and months on end and years on end. You keep giving and giving and giving. And I've heard it in the past, you know. You know I've heard it from people. I, you know, I've been giving all of these years and I've got nothing in return. And so I'm going to stop giving. What are they telling me? They've come to the end of themselves. I need a, I need a source of love that's greater than myself. That's what I'm telling you today. Does anybody else need a source of love greater than yourself? Don't you think you're going to come to the end of yourself somewhere? You're going to run into some needy people going to suck everything out of you and you're going to have nothing left? You know, I don't have that much to give. Come on now. We're all, you know, you guys look so saintly out there, Pastor. And we're so, feeling so bad for you. You're just a wimp, you know. We can do it. Or are you like me and saying, honestly, I think I need to be a channel of God's love. I need the Spirit of God to start flowing into my life so that there's an unlimited supply of giving to give. Because I know I can run out pretty fast. I can weary in this. I can get frustrated when the need seems to be beyond my capabilities and my abilities. I need the Spirit of God to fill me so that I have something to give. Amen? So let's just open our hearts to God today and say, Lord, would you come today and fill our hearts? Would your spirit just come and fill my heart with divine love today? it wouldn't just be you know valentine's day about romantic love though i think it might be important that you show your spouse some affection today that's probably why to do except the word on the side but what i'm saying is that our love would extend beyond that amen that we would love fully that there would be an inexhaustible supply flowing into our lives from god above lord i pray today that you would just pour out your spirit into our needy souls and make up a channel of your love i just pray oh god that you would so fill us that lord as we are pouring out we would not diminish but lord as we're giving we would intensify that all of us, sudden our capacity, and our channel, would grow, Father, so that we can love more, deeply, more completely, because we're experiencing love from above. We thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray today for those that may not know you, Father. Brokenness fills our lives. Lord, I pray today that you'd open every heart so that love may flow from above. Healing, forgiveness.